The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. Take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. Genesis Chapter 2, what a great blessing to worship this evening, to sing praise to the Lord, to be with each other and to fellowship, to encourage one another in the Lord, and then to come to God's Word, not only to sing it, but to read it and study it. And uh, in this case, not an expositional uh, consecutive text, but an expositional uh, topical text. And... What I have chosen uh, is for the um, for a short series, I don't think it's going to be too long, uh, is Eternity in Biblical Perspective. May I mention to you why I have chosen this uh, series, Eternity in Biblical Perspective. Now, one of the reasons I'm going to share why I chose it is because I... My guess is some of you are aware that um, a couple of weeks ago my sister went to be with the Lord. You're probably saying, well, the pastor uh, lost his sister and, and the issue of eternity would be upon his mind and he would be addressing it. Well, actually, I'd already decided to do this about four or five months ago and have been preparing for it. And then, of course, it coincided with God's providence and uh, a, a challenging providence, but it's truly God's providence in taking my sister home to be with him. Uh, that was not the motivation, but I did have some motivations four, five, six months ago. Let me share with you a couple of them. Some of them go way back in terms of God's call on my life. Uh, I have mentioned to uh, a number of people that when God called me into ministry, um, I was in that era of uh, men being called to ministry and being prepared where... The the exotic thing to do, the attractive thing to do, uh, was to go into parachurch ministry and the beckoning call of Campus Crusade and InterVarsity and Navigators, all of which, of course, I highly value their ministries. And uh, so it was kind of like the guys that were pretty gifted, that's what they would do. The other guys, well, why don't you go get a church somewhere? <laughs> and uh, that was kind of the way it was viewed. But uh, just in my college years and in my early years in seminary, my heart went the other direction uh, because I, first of all, would study the scripture and it would tell me that Jesus went to the cross to purchase uh, his church with his own blood and that Jesus had given himself for the church, his bride, to secure her. And that he had gifted pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints in the church that they could do the work of the ministry. 
uh, and that God's plan of his great commission and equipping people with the great commandment was worked out in the context of the church. It was abundantly clear in the book of Acts that when God would turn the world upside down, he did it through leaders rooted in churches like Ephesus and Jerusalem and Rome and Antioch and these churches. So uh, my heart immediately went to and was nurtured in, I sense God was calling me to be a pastor teacher. Now, there was something that was working against that. The, 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 I still had that siren call to a parachurch ministry. Now, why would that be in light of the convictions and passions that I just told you? Well, um, I really wasn't excited about this pastoral piece of hospital visitation and funerals. In fact, I remember talking to one of my pastor, my pastor, when I went to him about the call to ministry. And I said to him, I said, Pastor Al, do you, I just don't know whether I'm called or not. And then he gave me that Spurgeon-esque Advice, son, if you can do anything else in life other than the ministry, uh, go do it. Uh, but if God won't let you do anything else, then you got to do this. And, um, and then I began to share with him my, um, not revulsion, but my, uh, just my, my lack of attraction to hospital and, and to, uh, and to funerals and that kind of thing. And he said, well, he said, I suggest you go take a trip for about three days and deal with it. Because that's going to be a vital part of your life. It's a crucial part of your life. Oh, yeah, it would be nice just to go do a parachurch ministry and deal with the living and uh, and then pawn it off to the churches when they're dying or sick or in the hospital. He said, but that's not what we do. He said, it's at moments of crisis like that that we want to bring the testimony of Christ. And that's where you've got to deal with this in your heart, that not only are you willing to do it, but you are ready to do it. Thus, I have uh, been in the pastorate now for 40 plus years, and um, I've been in scores of cemeteries. I have been besides many, many hospital beds. Um, and I have um, uh, seen people getting ready to meet the Lord. I have seen people who were not yet ready to meet the Lord. I have seen families grappling with the loss of a loved one, and understandably so. And seeing all of those things that are there. So where do you start? Well, let me tell you what you don't do. You don't get yourself into trouble and you don't trouble others by trying to come out with meaningless platitudes and sentimental statements. You know, like, oh, listen, God's just got bouquets in heaven and your loved one was a wonderful flower that he plucked for a bouquet. Mercy. Uh, I've, I've heard some of the most unbelievable things. Uh, all I've got's the Bible. That's all I've got. So what does the Bible say about eternity? And what about the door to eternity? And that is death itself. And why is it that believers who are ready to meet the Lord, 
who long to meet the Lord still fight for life? Why don't they just say, well, I'm going to heaven. Let me just go ahead and get it done. Why is it that they still breathe? Why is it they work through treatments? Why is it that they still cling to life with the reality of death in front of them and the biblical knowledge that this is a different death because they're a believer and they're going to be with the Lord? Why are those things there and how is it that you help people walk through it? And what is um, and, and, and then the biggest question of all is, what is it like on the other side of grace? What is it like when we are no longer in need of faith, no longer in need of hope? What is it like when all of that has been fulfilled and we are in his presence? And yet, what about that intermediate state? He hasn't come again yet. And the eternal being and status and the final state has not been established. What is that intermediate state like? What does it mean to be absent from the body present with the Lord? Because in all of eternity, you won't be absent from the body and present with the Lord. In the final state, you'll have a body. Your body will be resurrected into a glorified new body. But yet in that intermediate state, you're absent from the body, yet present with the Lord. What does that mean? What does that look like? What does the Bible tell us about it? So I want to be able to give people comfort and direction in those moments that is faithful to God's word. And I want you to know about it. There have been many times in hospitals and in funerals that I got instructed. It wasn't me that was helping them. It was them helping me. My very first hospital visit. My pastor obviously knew I was struggling with it. I was uh, brought into Charlotte to be the youth pastor that summer by my home church that had um, sent me away to college and uh, and uh, to Covenant College to prepare and then on to seminary. They said, why don't you come? And so we moved back to Charlotte. And that's why Jennifer was born there. And that's where we were that summer as I was a youth pastor. And the pastor had me doing certain things to start introducing me to the pastoral ministry. I remember Dick Ball came to me one Tuesday and he said, um, here's a lady in the hospital you need to visit. And I said, you know, Pastor T.V. Ball, I mentioned to you, this is little. He said, son, this will be good for you. Go for it. I said, well, can you tell me what I do? He said, yeah, go in there, read the Bible, and have prayer with them. I said, okay. And, uh, and there was, I could notice there was a little twinkle in his eye. And I got to find out why the twinkle was. As I went to Presbyterian Hospital that day, I went up to the third floor. I, with fear and trepidation, knocked on the door, and she said, come in. And I walked in, and there was a founding member of Faith Presbyterian Church. About that much of her. Diabetes had removed both legs. And she looked at me. She reached up to the hanging little triangle thing. Pulled herself up. 
and the next words out of her mouth. Well, you're the preacher boy, huh? I've been waiting for you. So I went over and uh, began to pray with her as she began to pray for me. I pulled up my Bible and went to the Psalms. I got one sentence out. And the rest of it, I was following her as she quoted it ahead of me. Uh, Dick Tevyball knew who to send me to for my first hospital visit. And it whetted my appetite instead of further, uh, um, instead of further uh, frightening me. So I'm hoping to give you and I some biblical data here that will help you in your ministry to other people. And I love this about you. When people go through difficulties, whether it's hospital or home or relationships or facing the issues of eternity, I praise the Lord that as a congregation, as elders, as pastors, as deacons, as members, you don't run from it. You run to it. And you're ready to serve. Are there some things in God's word that can help us when we run to it and not from it? I believe so. And the first thing is just to understand about this thing called death. If I'm not mistaken, um, there is a definite and distinct absolute probability that if Jesus doesn't come back, you're going to die. And so will I, if he doesn't come back first. I only know of two exceptions, and that's Enoch and Elijah. That's all I I know about. Those are the only two exceptions. Everyone else has met it. Even your Savior met death. Uh, Some people had to meet death twice. Those were the ones that Jesus raised, but they had to die again. And uh, so, um, uh, so it is a certain reality that you and I face. That's why the book of Hebrews says, It is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. Now, I would like to cover that matter of the judgment uh, from the Word of God in about four weeks, uh, as we get to the uh, toward the end of this study, but uh, I want to just cover the first part of it: God's appointment for our death. Why is it there? Well, uh, maybe you are a fan of the movie Forrest Gump, and you know a lot of the Forrest Gump sayings. You know, life is a box of chocolates, etc. You've heard people quote them all over. Well, here's a Forrest Gump saying. Mama says that dying is a part of living. Well, Mama may be a wonderful southern woman of uh, thoughtful wisdom, but she is a terrible theologian. Dying is not a part of living. Dying is an enemy to what God created called living. It is an intruder. It is not to be considered a part of living. The only people that believe dying is a part of the living are either those who have not dealt with the word of God about death 
are, are those who have rejected the word of God for a Darwinian atheistic world and life view. But for those who understand a biblical world in life, you dying is not a part of living. Would you take your Bibles and look with me in Genesis chapter two? Let's take a look at living. First of all, look at verse seven. And then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the man became a living creature. Notice Adam was not a living creature when God formed him from the dust of the ground. He was a corpse. He did not become a living creature until God breathed into him. The nephesh, the breath of life. And then Adam became a living soul. That's what makes us who we are in life. That view of life is still penetrates our society. I just saw the movie Sully again. And as I was listening to it, Sully, Captain Sully would not rest until he found out about all his passengers. And when the report came, it said all 178 souls are accounted for. That's what makes us who we are, that we are living beings because we have a soul. And what we now learn from this is that to live is to have a spirit or a soul as well as a body, to have a physical as well as a spiritual. Now, what you must not do is allow what has happened to you, and that is the inundation of Greek uh, paganism into our educational system so that basically the way we think is there's a body and there's a spirit, or there's a body, and there's a soul. And I know some of you are asking right now, is it body, soul, and spirit, or is it body and soul? Well, I am not a, quote, trichotomous. I do not believe it's body, soul, and spirit. I believe the Bible's clear about this. It's, you're a body and a soul or a spirit, the immaterial you is referred to for different purposes with different names, soul, spirit, mind, heart, etc. And so, uh, so there's a material you that comes in the image of your parents. There is an immaterial you that comes in the image of God, where you buy, where you are the imago Deo, and it is that that makes you a living being. And that's what has so established you as a person. Now, where does this matter of death comes from? Well, you see the admonition just a couple of verses later. Would you go with me? Uh, well, let me just stop. Let me just say one more thing. So do not think, okay, I am a body and inside of this body is a soul or a spirit. And my body is kind of like a vehicle that's carrying around this soul or spirit. And so death must be opening the door of the vehicle and letting the spirit or the soul out. Now, if you understand the language here and the framework and the grammar is that the soul is breathed 
into that body. That body doesn't become a vehicle to carry the passenger, the soul. It is, that's not the picture. The picture is more aptly two threads woven into one cloth. That we are physical and spiritual. And what you do physically affects you spiritually. And what you do spiritually will affect you physically. So we are a, we are a being with these two threads that were not made to be separated. They were made to be united and intertwined and interdependent for all of eternity. We were made forever. That's what we were made for. Dying was not a part of living. You don't find dying in Genesis 1 and 2, it's not natural. You find dying in Genesis 3, after sin. But in Genesis 2, you find the warning. Would you take your Bibles and go down a little bit further with me um, into, um, into verse uh, 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. To work it and keep it, that is, to tend it and defend it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now the man is given a mandate from the Lord. It has four elements to it. He is instructed uh, in the scripture, I won't turn to it, but I'll go ahead and give it to you, that he is to rule over the creation. I'm not going to go through it much because I'm going to be going over this in our studies on stewardship on Sunday morning. He is to rule over the creation. He is to have dominion over the creation. And he is to uh, not only rule over it, not only to have dominion over it, he is also, um, and to work within it, but and to subdue it, but he is also to... Um, to be fruitful and multiply. So there are your three, for the three positives, that you are to subdue the earth, that's the sanctity of work, you are to rule over it, that's the call of stewardship, as those made in the image of God, vice regents over his creation, and then thirdly, you are to, um, you are to be fruitful and multiply, you are to fill it up, is what God calls you to do with this creation. And then he gives a fourth statement. And everybody treats it as a negative, but it's not a negative. It is given as a positive. Notice how it's given. It isn't given, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is given this way. He commands the man saying, you may eat of every tree of the garden. It is a positive command. All of these trees are yours. Now go eat of them. But do not eat. Now here is the prohibition to that positive command. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then when you do that, that disobedience will bring a penalty. It will bring my judgment. And that judgment is death. Thus, death will be visited. 
Would you take your Bibles and would you go with me over to Genesis chapter 3? Now, we're doing Bible study tonight, okay? I hope you got your Bible with you or you've got your iPhone loosened up. Uh, So look with me in Genesis uh, chapter 3. And then um, uh, and follow along with me in what occurs uh, beginning in verse 8. Um, and I'm sorry, let's just go back up. I'll start. I'll start at verse uh, three. Well, no, let me go ahead and start at the beginning. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of any uh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And neither shall you touch it lest you die. Of course, you can see immediately she's adding to Satan is questioning the word of God. Uh, He always does that. He's doing that today, isn't he? He he goes to seminaries and trains ministers to question the word of God and then they go into churches questioning the word of God and that's that's what is constantly happening but not only and and when that happens not only is there the undermining of the authority and sufficiency and inerrancy of the word of God but there is also the adulterating of the word of God as Eve does because she now adds to it and we can't even touch it lest we die Which, of course, the Lord had not said that. He had said, eat of the trees and do not eat of this tree. And so uh, she, uh, she then, and then the serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die. In other words, God's a liar. God's word is not trustworthy. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Of course, right there, um, you know, Adam, would you mind speaking up, please? <laughs> we don't have to eat of this to, to know that we can be like God. We already are. We were made in the image of God. We already are. And then he says, um, and then for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And you can see what later John will call lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. There it is right in the text, the lust of the eyes um, that she saw the tree was good for food. Uh, I mean, and I mean, lust of the flesh that the tree was good for food, the lust of the eyes, it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was desired to make one wise. In other words, she could rise to divinity through it. Then uh, what does she do? She took from its fruit and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So now we're informed not only did she do it, but she didn't do it in isolation. Adam is there with a sinful silence. And not doing that which he would be called to do in caring for his wife. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin uh, cloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So let me stop there just for a moment. So uh, they sin against the Lord. And now what comes into creation? Fear. I was afraid and I hid myself. What else comes into creation? Shame. I was naked. What else comes into creation? Man's religion. First of all, they tried to cover their fear and their shame and remove it with fig leaves. Well, that didn't work. It says when God came into the garden, they said, well, we were naked. You know, technically they weren't. Remember, they had just sowed for themselves. I love the new Geneva standard. I mean, the Geneva Bible from uh, from from Geneva during the Reformation. They had sowed breaches for themselves. That sounds so much better than fig leaves. They had sowed breaches for themselves. But that didn't do the work. You see, our works to cover our fear and shame never work. And therefore, they hid themselves in the trees. We're always trying to hide ourselves in the trees of materialism, secularism, consumerism. Just hide from the Lord. But that doesn't work. Then they make their third effort. And now they go to a secular religion. Well, I've got a syndrome. My syndrome is I'm a victim. You see... um, Adam says to God, yeah, I ate, but then again, I didn't eat. It was the woman. She gave me the fruit, and I ate. And by the way, God, you gave me the woman. See, I've got a syndrome. I've got, got, I need some therapy. I am a victim. I've got a very dysfunctional wife. And by the way, I've got a dysfunctional God because you're the one that gave me her. And then he turns to her, and she is no different. She does the first comedian uh, line that uh, I grew up with for Flip Wilts, and the devil made me do it. It wasn't me, it was that serpent over there. He gave me the fruit, and I ate. So again, it's all cover-up, not confessing up. So what does the Lord do? Here's what the Lord does. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heels. So now we have a promise. Here is the anticipation of the virgin birth. Because there's going to be a woman who has a seed. Women don't have seed, biologically. Men have seed. But there will be a woman who has seed, and she will give birth. And the woman she gives birth, the, the, that one that she gives birth to, will be the enemy of and the adversary of Satan and his seed. And will win the victory. How do you know the victory? Because he'll be bruised on his heel. It'll cost him. But the serpent will be bruised upon his head. That's lethal. 
And so that particular first uh, proto-evangelistic statement, that is the first evangelistic, uh, the first gospel message is given to us of one of hope. But there's also something else in there, that there will be adversary, there will be an opposition, that you, there will be enmity between you and the woman and the offspring of the woman. Now, who is the offspring of the woman? The Messiah, yes, but also those that belong to the Messiah. That's why we know there will be persecution against the Lord's church until he comes, and the serpent will try to devour that church and that one that belongs to the Lord. And so that warfare is going to be in existence between Satan as long as he's allowed existence and that one, and that which is the offspring of the fulfillment of God's promise. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And now you bring death to the marital relationship. There's the woman is it desires the husband's position uh, that um, uh, the woman desires his position uh, to want to be over him. Your desire is contrary to your husband. And then the husband will respond with his physical strength or his uh, his his separation, his isolation. He shall rule over you. And so what do you have? And by the way, that word rule is the in, in, um, in that's the verb. But the noun form is tyrant. He will tyrant put it in its, in its original form. It would be he will tyrannize you. And so now do you see why? Can I just stop here? We're going to be doing a conference on the family and marriage in, deep, in, uh, in August. Now can you see why the gospel should be making such a difference in a marriage? Instead of women seeking to conquer their husbands, you have women who complete their husbands and come alongside of them with respect. And instead of men who would resort to the tyrannizing of their wives, either physically or by ignoring them or walking away from them and abandoning their covenant vows, you have men that will lay down their life for their wife and love them as Christ loved the church. But here you see death is brought to relationships. Death now begins to be introduced. Spiritual death the death in relationships. And then he said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and now death. And to dust you shall return. Thus the wages of sin is death. And here that death is described as the curse of sin is brought to creation, to the creature, to the creatures, to the relationships, to the sanctity of work. To the sanctity of marriage, to the sanctity of childbearing, all of this is now impacted by man's sins and death 
becomes present and prevailing throughout all of the culture that as, uh, as it exists before us. Yet a promise that there will come one who will win the victory over Satan and all of his seed. Will win the victory over Satan and the sin and the death and all that it brings. So if I could summarize it this way, it is sin that brings forth death. And death comes in three kinds of death. It's the Greek word thanatos. And the Greek word thanatos is, um, it means a separation from. So you can get the picture. Death is that which was not made to be separated. The body and the spirit is now rendered apart from each other. Your body and your spirit aren't two elements that are like a perforated um, paper. And, oh, I'm just separating them. No, they're two threads woven together. James says that the soul is separated from the body. That's not just a, oh, let's just tear it apart. No, it's rendering apart what wasn't in creation designed to be rendered apart. So there are three kinds of death that comes in Thanatos. There's physical death, the separation of the soul from the body. Then there is, um, uh, and, and by the way, that is such an, and I don't want to get too far into this because I am uh, next week, Lord's, Lord willing. But I don't know how many times I, as a pastor, have been in that hospital room with loved ones, with their loved one. And the diagnosis is terminal. And how much do we do? We'll talk about that later. Ethically. In sustaining life. And what do you do? And then as we're talking through that and praying through it, uh, they'll turn to me so many times and say, and folks, I don't have any magic insight here. But there have been many times, uh, multiple times, I've been there. And while the machines are doing their work, it is more than obvious to me they're already with Jesus. They're not there. They're with the Lord. Well, there have been other times that I've been there, and I've said to people, I don't think it's done. One of them was my father-in-law. The doctors are telling us in Memorial Hospital, uh, I'm sorry, Presbyterian Hospital, uh, here's where he is, here's the x-rays, here's the pictures, here's this, and I'm standing in there with him and with my dear wife, and I said, honey, I'm not trying to prolong anything, but I'm telling you. <laughs> I said, tell him to give us at least 12 hours. I don't think he's done. <laughs> Three days later, he walked home. And he got to see another grandbaby born. And he got to spend another year and a half with him. That moment when the spirit leaves the body is a fascinating uh, thing to think about and contemplate. And uh, it has just been so challenging in life to, to be in those situations. When does that soul leave the body? Oh, we have all kind of metrics, brain waves and heartbeats, and I understand all of that. But when does it? Because that's when they're dead. When the soul has left the body. 
and they're absent from the body, but present with the Lord. The, hev- the earthly tent is laid aside in anticipation of a heavenly tent for eternity. But that's not the only death. There's also a spiritual death that's the result of sin. Would you take your Bibles and go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And of course, I know you are very familiar with those wonderful, uh, that wonderful passage in Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 through 8. But I just want to look at part of it. Would you go with me to verse 1? And you were dead. There's that word. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now stop right there. Don't you see? Aren't you, aren't you a little dis discombobulated what did he just say in verse one you were what you're dead and then he says you're living out the passions of your flesh so clearly this isn't a physical death this is a spiritual death because you're living out something you're living out your spiritual depravity You once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our... Not physical death he's looking at. Spiritual death of the dominion of sin. You were dead in our trespasses and sins. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not as a result of works so that no, so that not, uh, so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God, prepared, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, if I can just pull all that together, not try to go to any depth of exposition, but what he's telling you is this. When you are born physically in this world, you're not yet physically dead, but with the moment you're born, you're spiritually dead. You are dead in your sins. Therefore, your physical life is living out rebellion against God. Now, none of you or me were ever as evil as we would have been and could have been, not because we had a little spark of goodness in us, but because of something called God's common grace that keeps us from being as evil as we would be. Now, folks, this is revolutionizing, revolutionary in a Christian world in life view. If you understand what I'm saying, you do not, you would not, you would be horrified, but you wouldn't be amazed at a Hitler. What you'd be amazed is you're not one. 
Because the only reason you're not one is God's grace that restrained us from our depravity in common grace. And then came redeeming grace so that we came to Christ because we became, by his grace, born again. Notice what the text is telling you. The text is telling you you're dead in your sins. And the only way you can get to Jesus is for the Spirit of God from Jesus to bring you from death unto life. Because until then, you're what? You're dead. You're not sin sick. You're sin dead. You're sin dead and separated from God. And so people will come and bring the gospel to you as we're called to do. And God's going to use that. But something's got to happen to you for that to benefit you. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you cannot. You don't have the ability. You cannot. He didn't say you not. You may not. He said, you cannot. He's speaking of not permission. He's speaking of ability. You cannot see or enter the kingdom of God until you are born again. Whosoever will may come. You've got permission. But then Jesus says, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. There has to be that glorious, sovereign work of grace to bring us from death unto life that, for, that we will come to Christ. In other words, it's not become a Christian to be born again. You've got to be born again to become a Christian. Until then, we're dead. We're dead in our sins. Now, if you don't mind, I'm just going to give you one more death, and it's not going to spend any time on it, because we're going to be spending time on it. And that is what the Bible says, the wages of sin is death, physical, spiritual, and eternal. Depart from me. What is death? Separation. What is physical death? Separation of the soul from the body. What is spiritual death? Born separated from God with no ability to do anything about it apart from God's grace. And what is it? And what is it? Uh, can I just stop there again? Folks, now do you see why you ought to be doing what John says? You remember when John says that to you and we start singing praise to God because of his grace? And he says, no soft singing. We ought not to be, have to be told no soft singing. Because we were dead and we're alive. Let me ask you something. If somebody got up from a casket, what would you do? I don't think we'd have to say, would you mind sharing something? I mean, you would get pretty excited about it. Well, every single one of you that are Christians, starting with this preacher right here, we are products of a spiritual cemetery. And we've been raised. By God's grace and for his glory. That's why we sing amazing grace and we're actually amazed by grace. So um, that's why we sing that song a while ago. Oh, how wonderful. Oh, how marvelous is God's grace and love to me. So here is, and then thirdly, is eternal death. Again, separation. Depart from me. 
This is with no remedy for all eternity. The judgment of God upon our sin for all eternity. And the way that you don't have to face that is come to Jesus who took that eternal condemnation for you at the cross. So you and I could have everlasting life. So the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And I'm out of time. I did not get to where I wanted to tonight. Because so let me let me can I set you up for next Sunday night? You ready? So. Where did death go? Sorry, Mr. Gump. Death is not part of living. (laughs) Death is an intruder. It came from sin. And when sin came, death came. Physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. Now, why did it come to you? Why, Why are you dead in your sins? Why do you face physical death? Why do you have out there... An eternal death that you don't want to be a part of. You want to have eternal life. Why you? And are there any exceptions? Is there some place somewhere in some interior of some continent where this doesn't apply? I mean, is there anybody out there that's innocent? And if not, why not? Well, God's got the answer for that. It's called original sin. That's why the actual sin. And God tells us why and how. Pastor, how and why? I'm glad you ask. I'll tell you next Sunday night. If you want to get ahead of me, read Romans 5 and read 1 Corinthians 15. And that's where we'll begin next Sunday. In death spread to all men. How and why? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word and thank you for the time we could be together in it tonight. God, I thank you so much. I just love these Sunday evening worship services. I pray that you'd get more people to love them. And uh, and I thank you for these that are here. And I thank you for what we can learn because it's going to help us not only face life, Face the shadow of death, anticipate eternity, but it'll also help us in discipling others, beginning with our own loved ones and children, as well as others in our relationship. So continue to bless us as we spend time in your word in this matter uh, throughout the month of January. And, uh, and would you bless your people as they absorb and marinate in what we have looked at tonight. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.